continue a series that uh, we started a couple of weeks ago called Godly Patterns for Ordinary People. Godly Patterns for Ordinary People. How many of you have been here for the last two weeks? Okay, so for some of you this is new. Um, the idea is that we think of God in, in all these regal terms. You know, God is holy and God is all-powerful and God is majestic and God is eternal and God is all of these things and all those things are true. Uh, but then we look at our lives, which are rather ordinary, and we start to wonder, well, how does the, the majesty of God really kind of intersect with our lives? And how do we learn to, to live differently and develop different ways of living? Uh, a pattern is a behavior that you repeat. So if you do something over and over again, well, that's a pattern. It's a habit. So how can you make your habits a little bit more godly? How can you make changes that are realistic in your life. Uh, I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions. If you've made them, how many of you have kept them so far? It's January 21st. One, one fellow in the back, he's, he's, he still kept his, all right? Well, I don't make them anymore because about uh, 12.01 in the morning, you know, on the New Year, that's when I break them, about one minute into the New Year, okay? So, but realistically, can we, le- can we learn to live in a godly way? And I believe the answer is yes. Um, We talked about making God's time your time. Remember, number your days, redeem the time, and look for those God moments, those kairos uh, moments we talked about. Talked about making God's order your order last week. Uh, Put things in the right place, make it simple. Uh, Order is is a means to an end, not the end. And we we ended last week with the with the illustration: make your bed. How many of you made your bed this morning? Good. All right. It felt good, didn't it? Yeah. So today we're going to talk about making God's strength your strength. God's strength your strength. Uh, starting with a, with a, a story from the Bible's Old Testament that is not looked at too often. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of summarize it for you. It has to do with the life of David. Uh, most of you would know David for the the infamous battle with Goliath. You know, any of you know that story, David and Goliath? Okay, if you're there, then you got the right guy. Uh, he's also famous for a big blunder in his life, right? A, an affair and a murder to cover the affair and a baby from the affair who died and this big mess in, in David's life. So if you if you know those two stories, this is the fellow that I'm talking about. Um, David, when we meet him in, in Scripture and we watch him before he becomes king, David uh, ends up being uh, like America's most wanted uh, in Israel. So he, he, there's a manhunt, a kind of a national manhunt to kill David. A- and the reason is that the king of the time, uh, whose name was Saul, was insanely jealous of David, a man who had served him in, in his court. Uh, but a man who, when he killed Goliath, the people looked at him and said, wow, this guy is a leader. And this made uh, Saul very, uh, very jealous. And he basically staged a national manhunt to kill this, this man, David, uh, and to, to eliminate the possibility that he would take the throne. Okay, so you can read about this. It's several chapters in the books of uh, First Samuel, Second Samuel, mostly First Samuel. You'll read about that whole manhunt. 
uh, and it goes on and on and on. He's literally running for his life in the caves from this this crazed uh, uh, leader. And uh, David forms a relationship, a very close bond, a friendship with Saul's son. His son's name is Jonathan. So if you can remember David and Jonathan, that's what's going on. Uh, And they have a friendship that they develop. It's a very, very close bond that we see. And and we can can watch this weave its way through this manhunt that takes place in uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And nested in the whole drama, we can see a tremendous example of how this man made God's strength his strength. Uh, The first instance of this, uh, David learns that Saul... Has got, um, has got him in his sights. So he knows where David is. Uh, David starts to get discouraged. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 23, uh, verses 15 to 18, which I think I have somewhere. Yeah, 1 Samuel 23, 15 to 18. So listen, listen to the way it's written. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. And I will be second to you. Even my father knows this, David. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. It's a very, very strong bond, a very close relationship. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. So what happens next, as you, as you read through the story, uh, is that Saul tracks him down. He's actually on one side of a mountain, and, and David's on the other side of the mountain. But Saul calls off the 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 hunt temporarily because he has he's he's deterred by a battle with the philistines one of the arch enemies of israel at the time and and david once again he lives to see another day uh and he evades the hand of saul but the moment where he gains strength there is in verse 16 and he has jonathan to help him so he helped him find strength in god don't be afraid he said and we see this instance and then we we watch the next seven chapters or so um, of the story and you can read it at home i mean that'll be my my homework challenge for you is to read those chapters from first samuel 23 to first samuel 30 and and trust me it's action-packed i mean you see all kinds of things there it reads like a straight story it's not confusing it'll be easy for you to understand and you see all these experiences that david has while saul has this national israel's you know most wanted david reward for his head type of thing and you watch it happen there's all kinds of people in the mix some very strange and unusual situations Uh, david actually has two chances where he has saul vulnerable and he can he can take saul out Uh, and and you can read about those he has two chances to kill him and he does not Um, And then David and 600 of his men actually end up living amongst the Philistines. Again, the arch enemy of Israel, or one of them. He lives with them uh, for 16 months. 
because he's hiding from Saul. And he figures Saul will not find him uh, if he goes and lives with, among the Philistines. And he does that in a place called Ziklag. They actually give him a, a town. And he ends up being put in a position, get this, where he and his men, and they're from Israel, have to go to war with the Philistines against Israel. So he's pushed into a bit of a corner there, and he has to use politics to navigate his, his way through this. There's even a bizarre story in those chapters where Saul uh, goes to consult a witch to channel the dead prophet Samuel from the dead to get advice. So it's not boring reading, okay? As you read through this, wild, wild experiences that David has in the wilderness, you know, running from Saul. And then you see in 1 Samuel chapter 30, um, David is refused, he's declined by an ally of the Philistines uh, to fight with them against Israel because they're nervous and they're saying, you know, this guy's from Israel. Here we are going to fight against Israel, and we've got an Israelite and 600 of his men with us. They're going to turn on us. They're going to show their true colors. Even though they've been good people, even though they've lived amongst us for 16 months, they're going to turn on us. And we would be wise to send them back to Ziklag there. We gave them the town, let them go over there, but we don't want them messing with this battle because we don't think that they're going to be for us. They're going to be for Israel. And so they tell David the news, and David, you're out, you're not coming to the battle. And uh, so the, David and his 600 men go back to Ziklag, this town that they, that they took possession of uh, peacefully from the Philistines. They arrive at the town, only to find that the Amalekites, which is another rival of Israel at the time, have sacked and burned the town completely and taken hostage all of the families including David's. Uh, David, as you know, had multiple wives, and they've got his wives, they've got kids, they've got the 600 men, their wives, their kids. They take them all hostage. They sack and burn the whole city. So everybody's in shock, and people turn, and they look at David, and they say, you know what? Uh, we, don't, we don't know if you know what you're doing anymore. And they debate whether or not they're actually going to execute David uh, on the spot and stone him. It's a terrible, terrible time. You see desperation. You see people weeping in desperation because of what has happened. And uh, all their families are gone. They've been taken captive by the Amalekites. And here's where you see it. First Samuel chapter 30, verses 3 to 6. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire. And their wives and sons and daughters uh, taken captive. So David and his men wept out loud. And until they had no strength left to weep. Wow, I mean, that's a lot of tears. David's two wives had been captured, uh, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, who you will see how he meets her if you read the, do your homework this week, the widow of Nabal at Carmel, or of Carmel. And verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Big problem. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and because of his daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. We've seen that before. When Jonathan was by his side, when Saul was on the hunt, he, he, together with Jonathan, he found strength in God. But here he is completely alone. 
His own men are going to turn on him. And somehow, it says, he found strength in the Lord his God. In some Bibles, it says, he encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, the question for us is, how did he do that? What did he do? What experiences did he have between chapter 23 and chapter 30 that taught him how to draw strength from God himself and encourage himself in the Lord? Um, Fortunately, in the New Testament, we have a magnificent passage of Scripture that helps us understand this, and it's from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Uh, And you're talking, you know, uh, 2,000 plus years later, but you see the same kind of concept um, that David must have lived, uh, uh, written for us clearly by the Apostle Paul. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 um, and verses 16 to 18 in your your Bible, okay? If you have a Bible on your phone, uh, this is a verse that you want to remember. This is one that you, you should memorize. This verse is a, is a life-changing passage, okay? This is one of the great golden nuggets of the Bible. So if you want to take your time and turn there, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18 in the Bible's New Testament, really easy. Uh, I encourage people to use electronics for this because you all have phones or most of you have phones. Uh, version is a great app. New Life app is a great app. Um, and you can, you can get the Bible in any language there. While you're looking it up or turning uh, to 2 Corinthians 4, this, this message relates um, to the vision of our church. We talk about trying to reach the one who is far from God, that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. It's a bit of an aside but the, for today, but the first part of that of that vision to reach the one far from God is what we're trying to do. Uh, Last week we had a a kind of a moment of illumination uh, out in the corridor. Do you know that there are dozens of people walking in that corridor right now that are going to birthday parties and movies, and they've got no church background, no church experience. They're probably unchurched, de-churched, or anti-churched. I love those kinds of people. If you're unchurched, anti-churched, or de-churched, this is your church. (laughs) But we need to find a way to connect with those people. I had an amazing experience last week where I struck up a conversation with a guy who was looking for a water fountain. Um, and it was right in front of him. Usually with guys, it's right in front of them, right? And, and he, was, he was right there, and he said, do you know, can you tell me where the water fountain is? And it led to a conversation. Folks, do you know how easy it is to move that conversation into something about who Jesus is? You would be shocked how easy that is. So we went home, my wife and I, we said, we have to do something about this. This is embarrassing. Like we're right here and there's all these people here. It's embarrassing. They should be coming in here. We should be telling them about our church. We should be telling them about the Lord. So we went and we ordered all of these old-fashioned gospel tracts. Do you know what a gospel tract is? It's a piece of paper, you know, that has something about the gospel story on it. We ordered all these tracks, and we're going to come up with a kind of a display out there and give people coffee and tea and snacks and whatever, anything to get involved in a conversation and to let them know who we are, to reach the one who's far from God. They're right outside the threshold of this room. But that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. What is that? Well, ultimately, a passionate follower of Jesus is someone who makes a disciple. 
This is what Jesus said to do. He said, go and make disciples. So one would think a passionate follower of Jesus is one who makes disciples. Have you made any disciples lately? You know, that would be the litmus test of a passionate follower of Jesus. But part of being a disciple is to be a learner. It's to be a student of Jesus. And part of that experience is learning to strengthen oneself in the Lord. It's learning to encourage oneself in the Lord. And if you can't do that for yourself, how are you going to teach someone else to do it? Well, again, fortunately, we've got an amazing passage of Scripture. Again, one of the golden nuggets of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 16 to 18. All right, I'm going to read it for you, and then we're going to look at four, four ways to make God's strength your strength. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Four ways to make God's strength your strength. Number one, keep your spiritual heartbeat. Keep your spiritual heartbeat. He says, therefore, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Now, when you see the word therefore, always check to see what the therefore is there for. I know you're all looking at the heart. Okay, just, just, I'll get there in a second. See what the therefore is there for. And when you look at this passage, Paul is talking about the, the glory of the new relationship, the new covenant that we have in Christ and how it's not fading like the old covenant in the Old Testament and Moses and the law. And that as people who are believers in this new relationship with Jesus, this new covenant, Though we face opposition, though we face persecution, though we face uh, uh, criticism and despair and all of these things, therefore, we do not lose heart. That's why the word is there. One day we will, we will inherit resurrection is just the previous verses before, before what we're looking at today. And because of that, therefore, we do not lose heart. That's why the therefore is there. The physical heart is a wonder of, of, of design. I mean, you all have that inside your, inside your chest right now, okay? And, and it's beating. Uh, your, your heart is, is beating right now. I, I can prove it to you that your heart is beating because you're all alive, see? And if you weren't, then your heart likely would not be beating, it's a, it's a marvelous, marvelous muscle. It's a pump. It's a very, very simple pump. And its job is to pump for you every moment of your life. It's made to do that, to pump for you. And it'll pump uh, oxygenated and deoxygenated blood all around your body. It works in conjunction with the lungs which are very responsible for the whole dealing with you. your body needs oxygen and you got to take the, the blood that has no oxygen and feed it with oxygen and send it to the body because the body needs that to live. It's in the blood and that's how you live. It's an amazing, amazing pump, you know. And this is from your, you know, your grade six biology 
textbook, if you remember, right? You had to remember all those parts and, and all those things. It's an amazing, amazing thing, your natural heart. The, the thing about the heart, though, is that while it'll do it by itself, I mean, it's, it's an involuntary thing. You don't have to remind your heart to beat. Okay, everybody raise one of your hands. Raise one of your hands. Go ahead. I want to do an experiment with you. Okay, you, you had to will your hand to raise. You had to will it. it you, 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 your brain actually sent a signal to the nervous system and something very complex went on, but you willed your hand to go up in the air. You do not have to do that with that pump. You don't wake up in the morning and remind your heart to beat. If you had to do that, you'd be in serious trouble. Okay, you wouldn't be able to do it because you'd be dead already. Sorry to say. Uh, but it, it'll pump for you by itself. It's designed to do that. But you have to put something in your body that lets it, lets it do its job, yes? So you, you, have to, you have to deal with your diet, they tell us. So if you eat, you know, if you, if you work there, I'm not trying to take a shot at fast food or anything, but if you eat McDonald's every day, you're likely going to cause problems with that pump. If you eat that type of fast food every day, I mean, I like McDonald's, but I don't eat it every day. Because if I did, I might cause problems with that pump. Because if those valves get blocked up with, you know, some of that stuff, you got problems. And your heart could, you could have an attack of the heart where it's, it's blocked and it's not able to pump. So what you eat is important, uh, that, you, that you get, you know, rest is important, the drinking water, they say, is important. If you're a smoker, they say that, that that's not good for that pump there. It can make the stuff hard inside. It's, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying you're a terrible person if you smoke. I'm just saying it may, it may not be good for the ticker, if I may put it bluntly, if you do that. Um, exercise, they say, is really good for the heart, really good for the pump. There's a, there's a, a cute video of me exhausted on Facebook that probably some of you looked at this week. And I had finished, I had finished a 10-kilometer run, uh, which I could do in about an hour now. And uh, when, I, when I do that run at, at the gym just on this boring old treadmill... I always finish it with a, with a full sprint, as fast as the little treadmill will go, and it can go about 20 kilometers an hour, so I say, okay, fine, and so I'll finish the run with a sprint and really try and push the heart, really try and push it, and when I first started doing it, I could get my heart rate up to about 185. Uh, that's not the wise idea. It's, that means you're not very healthy. If, it, if, it, if you're in a sprint and your heart is, is going like, crazy like 185 beats a minute it means it has to work really hard to accommodate your lack of health so that's when i first started but now you know i can push it i can push the pump and it'll only get to about 160 i mean the heart says hey you you're a little more healthy now so i don't have to work as hard like i used to to, to feed you, your muscles, all the oxygen that they need here, so you're getting a little more healthy, and I can't push the pump hard. It won't go. It just won't go up to 180 anymore, so that's good. Um, when we exercise, we're, we're allowing the pump to do its job. The spiritual heart is not that different from the physical heart. 
when you lose heart, it means you lose the courage to carry on for another day. You know, David was discouraged in chapter 23. He's running for his life. And Jonathan comes and helps him find strength in God. And then he's discouraged in 1 Samuel 30. But he finds strength in God himself. He did not lose heart. He did not lose courage. And I'm convinced that that's the number one adversary for people. It's discouragement. When you lose your courage and when fear starts to take you over, then you are just paralyzed. And this is like a number one adversary in people's lives, people of faith, people of not faith. It's to be discouraged. Do not lose heart, but you have to, you have to put stuff in your spiritual life in order to keep the spiritual heart beating for you. You have to put some things in there. It's not just going to happen by itself. There is a phrase that I think is used now around the world in church circles, and it's a troublesome phrase, and people use it all the time. And they say things like, well, over here, I'm being fed, or I need to be fed spiritually. And that's code language for, you know, I like the preaching or I like the worship or something edifies me at, in yonder church over here or over there or this conference or this teacher or this book or this whatever. I'm being fed. Well, when I stop being fed, when I stop feeling fed, well, then I look for somewhere else or something else to feed me. Well, the question here is, can you learn to feed yourself? David learned to do that. He learned to find strength in his God himself when there was no one on his side, when his friend was gone, when all, all the people who he led were turning against him. He learned to find strength in his God. Let me give you three ingredients that you need to put into your spiritual life for your spiritual heart to keep beating. Number one, we need ecclesia. I'll use that word. The word church is a difficult word for me. I just need to be honest with you. We, we typically think of church as a building, uh, as a structure, a, as a bunch of uh, hierarchy and priests and all this stuff. I struggle with the word. This is not what the, what the word in the language of the New Testament means. Ecclesia is when people come together. And they come together for a purpose. Today we're here for uh, 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 an ecclesia. This is an ecclesia moment. And in, in the ecclesia of Jesus, there's an understanding that we're here because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is why we're here. And we want others to know that as well. That's also why we're here. You need that because it gives you courage. It encourages you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's why he says you come together to encourage one another. It's not for discouragement that you're part of Ecclesia and that you need Ecclesia. It's because you want encouragement. So for sure, that's a, that's a vital part of your spiritual heartbeat is you need Ecclesia. 
But there's moments where there's no ecclesia around you. There's no people around you. There's nobody to encourage you. The, the second thing you need is the Bible. You need the Bible. Uh, you need to have some type of you know, system or something where you're actually picking up the old book and you're reading the thing. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. If you don't have the Bible in your life at all, at all, your spiritual heart is not particularly healthy. You need to have a regular kind of diet of Scripture. You say, well, I have no clue how to read it. It's all, it's all these and thous to me. I don't understand what I'm reading at all. I've tried. You know, you need to come to our, to our group at 9 a.m. here on Saturday, U-Turn, which is a, a, like a beginner's thing for people who are new to the Christian faith. But we deal with some pretty, pretty important stuff in that group. And you will learn to understand the Bible in a basic sense just from a group like that at 9 a.m. right in the party room. Um, I have a I have a, a fellow who's in there with me. He and his wife this morning, and man, this guy he writes all this, all these notes and all these things. He comes with pages of notes. That, that is so impressive because that's how it gets into your soul. That's how it gets into your spiritual heartbeat. You need the Bible. You need ecclesia. You need prayer. You do need prayer. Do you know how many, how many couples, married couples, who profess to serve uh, a God that do not pray together? It's extremely common. Just, just, just a thought for you, those of you who are married. Uh, prayer is not, a, is not a sort of an option, uh, you know, when things are really bad. You, you need prayer because it's, it feeds your spiritual heartbeat. I mean, if you're not accustomed to praying, just think of it this way. You're telling God all about it. Get alone with God where you're not distracted by anyone or anything, even if it's just for a few minutes a day. You say, God, here's my day. Here's what happened. Here's what's terrible. Here's what's good. Here's how I'm feeling. This is, this is it, God. You, you, t you tell God. He can take all of your stuff. He can take all of, your, all of your, your anger and your whatever. He has really big shoulders. Like you don't have to be afraid that you're going to offend God. Uh, he wants to hear from you, uh, even if you use harsh language, okay? He, he want, he'd, rather hear how you've, he'd rather hear that than nothing, than nothing. I once knew a man, he was so angry at God, he took the Bible and he threw it across the room and slammed it across the room. He was so angry at what God was saying to him. I said, well, at least, at least he's angry, and he's not aloof to the presence of God in his life. You need, you need prayer, you need the Bible, you need Ecclesia. These things will help you to face tomorrow with courage. Uh, number two, be renewed daily. So Paul says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Being renewed day by day. You need a daily renewal. Well, of what? Uh, Paul gives us some insight into this in, in the book of Romans. He talks about renewal there. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And he says, I urge you in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, 
And he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I need to let you know something. The culture, the popular culture at large, is opposed to the worldview that you see in the scripture. So the culture will teach you all kinds of things. Uh, be materialistic. Um, seek pleasure. Y you can create your own reality. Uh, 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 there's no moral absolutes. It's all about you. Uh, get, be more successful. Don't worry about you know helping other people and all these kinds of these kinds of messages that come from culture. They're very opposed, almost entirely, to the worldview that you will see in the scripture. I'm talking about the way that you think about life. Is it colored by what the culture says or is it colored by what the scripture says? And you've got to be renewed daily and make a decision to say, you know, I'm not going to live the way the world lives. I'm not going to live in a materialistic, selfish, pleasure-seeking way. I'm going to live in a different way. But that's a conscious decision that you make daily to be renewed and to be transformed in the way that you think. And when you get into the habit of doing that, again, you're making God's strength your strength. Number three, and this is a hard one, let your trouble do the work. Let your trouble do the work. So uh, Paul says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Notice, our troubles are achieving for us something. A glory that far outweighs them all. Now, nowadays, we want to do anything that we can to avoid trouble. Uh, there's even large amounts of theology today that are very attractive and very enticing. Where, you know, if you, if you pray this way and if you believe this way and if you confess this scripture this way and if you speak this way, uh, then you can literally control your reality. You know, you can speak your way into prosperity and health and you don't need to have trouble, especially if you're a Christian. Christians shouldn't have trouble. They should have success and victory and all this other stuff. It's a very enticing, very popular theology. The problem with it is that we all know that there are times in life that trouble comes. And no matter what formula we try to come up with, no matter what scripture we try to chant, no matter what book we read, no matter what conference we go to, no matter what teacher we watch on the internet, the trouble's still there. The formula didn't work. It, nothing worked. It's still there. And, it, and it's heavy. And, and we, you know, we, we always look for a way out. Well, Paul's saying... Your troubles, first he calls them light and momentary, and we'll deal with that in a second. But he says your troubles are achieving something for you. They're achieving for you a glory that far outweighs them all. They're doing something for you. I can recall times um, in, in our lives as, as husband and wife in the ministry. You've been in the ministry for almost 16 straight years, full time now. Worked for a long time in the marketplace and then went into the ministry. And I, man, I, wow, there's things that we have seen and things that we have experienced in ministry because you have a unique opportunity to deal with people all the time. All the time. People and situations and all kinds of things. And I can recall a string of years 
it was five, six years where there was nothing but problems, nothing but crisis after crisis, and I mean scandals and all kinds of things that we were dealing with, and people with family crises, and all, just things that were unbelievable stuff. Some of it very, very sensitive, some of it very, very trying, especially on an emotional level. Now, I can recall days where I was out of the house at 5 o'clock in the morning dealing with a problem, with whatever situation. I wasn't home until 11 o'clock or midnight. I mean, it was that bad. It was 60, 70-hour weeks dealing with just all kinds of things in shotgun succession, one after the other after the other. And the unusual thing was each one got worse. You ever notice that? You go through the bad thing, and then, and then there's one that comes, and it's even worse. And then there's another one. Hey, it's even worse. Like, where are you, God? It's getting worse and worse. Isn't it supposed to get better and better? Why is it getting worse and worse? And there's one word that, that I could use to characterize these things. And you, you could probably feel the same thing regardless of whatever your trouble is. It's heavy. It's just heavy. It weighs you down. It just constantly weighs you down. And just, just, it just feels like weight. Well, Paul is saying here that that weight that you feel, those he, first he calls them light and momentary. Again, we'll get to that in a second. But he says, it's achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It outweighs your troubles. The, the idea of glory in the Bible is weight. It's the weight of God's presence. It's his tangible, palpable presence in your life where you literally can say, I feel the presence of God with me. And some of you have had those moments where you say you can literally feel the presence of God as if it's weight in your life. Well, he's saying those troubles can work for you. They can achieve for you a glory that outweighs them all. An eternal glory, so the presence of God with you in a much heavier way than the weight that you feel with those problems. Let your trouble do that work for you. Persevere through the trouble rather than looking for a constant escape hatch from the trouble. Watch what happens. God will use your trouble to perfect you. He will use your trouble to, to improve your character. He will use your trouble to encourage others. I've sat down with other people in church circles in confidential settings and described to them some of the things that we were going through as a couple. And they sat there with their mouths open. I said, wow, that's heavy. That's heavy. That's really heavy. But you know what? Paul says it's not heavy. It's light. And it's achieving for you a glory that far outweighs them all. Let your trouble do the work for you. Some of you have been through things that are terribly unjust, terribly wrong. And, and, you, and you want nothing to do with that. But those things, God can use those problems and he can use those troubles to bring something into your life and to bring you closer to him in a way that you've never been before. If you will let the trouble... Do that kind of work for you. And finally, fix your eyes on the unseen. So he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, 
but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. So he says those troubles are light and momentary. They don't feel that way when you're going through them. Uh, they feel like they're going to last forever. They feel like their heavy, heavy, heavy stuff is going on. He says they're light and momentary. Why? Because they're temporary. Because when you set them up against the backdrop of eternity, that's when we can see them as light, and that's when we can see them as momentary. Have you ever noticed how we close our eyes when we pray? You ever notice this? And sometimes we even say, can we please close our eyes and pray, you know? And, and that, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but there is not one single instance in the entire Bible. There isn't, I don't even think, a hint of an instance where someone closes their eyes when they pray. Not one. In fact, Jesus even said, watch and pray. <laughs> implies your eyes are open. There's not one single reference that I can find anywhere in the Bible where someone closes their eyes to pray. I just find it curious. But the, the reason why we do this is we're trying to see the unseen. Yes, we're trying to shut out the, the, the distractions and all these things, and we're trying to, to focus on what we can't see. We're trying to see the unseen. Well, what Paul is talking about here is a lot deeper than that. He's talking about understanding that your life here and what you can see is a blip on the radar of eternity. It is a small and light and momentary trouble that you're going through when you put it on the scope of eternity that is to come. And when you see it that way, you can say that it is light and momentary, but you have to see the unseen. You have to understand that that eternity that you cannot see is very, very real. And it's coming. It's coming. And with this, we're to have hope. With this, we can look at those trials as being light and momentary. Uh, a phrase that I often use when talking to people, I probably used it with many of you in this room, if you get nothing else out of this message, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Whatever your, your situation, whatever your trouble, whatever your trial, when set up against the backdrop of eternity, it will pass. It will eventually change. It will eventually go away. It will eventually pass. Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Last year, just a, a kind of a silly story for you. Uh, uh, my wife and I and, and our daughter, when the, when the clock struck 12 and it became 2000 and whatever, 16, um, right from the get-go, from January 1st, 2016, um, I caught some type of virus. Um, I'm convinced now that there is life on other planets because that virus was not of this world. I mean, it. I never, ever had uh, that type of thing before. Um, and I started, you know, by, by shaking uncontrollably. And then it was the rather uncomfortable, I won't say, you know, just a lot of time in the bathroom. A lot, a lot of painful, painful moments there, okay? And it was, and then, of course, the way it works is, you know, your family is caring for you. And as they care for you, what happens? They catch it. Right. So the whole household is sick and everybody's just, you know, the, it was a it was a, a stomach deal there. 
but it, I'm convinced it was the virus from the 10th layer of Hades, you know, or from Mars or from somewhere. And while you're there in that moment, and many of you have been in that moment, you just feel like, you know, death would be a viable option at this point, right? And you're irrational and you're just saying, when's it going to be over? And there's nothing you can do, nothing that you can do except wait and pray to God that it will pass. And then when it passes, what do you do? You rejoice. You say, oh man, we can actually eat again. There's this thing called eating, and we get to do that now. This is like, this is a wonderful surprise, right? You've, you've been there. And, and when you're in those moments, so you feel like, oh, this, this is, you know, again, death would be a viable option. Yes, you're irrational and all, but that's what you feel. Well, this is, this is kind of what Paul is saying. These things that you go through, when you set them up against the backdrop of the eternal, this too shall pass. Focus on what is uh, unseen, not what is seen. Uh, let your trouble do the work. Be renewed daily and keep your spiritual pump beating. Would you stand?